Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. Fieldcraftsurvival.com, globalrecon.net. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Mike Glover of Fieldcraft. Today, we don't have any guests on for today's episode, but we are going to discuss some very important uh, topics. And one of those topics is going to be Benghazi. Now, obviously, Benghazi has been highly politicized. It's become a political talking point. Movie was made. Books were made, were written. So we're going to talk about this. But Mike has a very interesting perspective uh, on Libya as he has experience in the region. So, Mike, I know you, you got to see the the movie 13 Hours in Benghazi. What did you think about it? Hey, guys, it's Mike from Um John, yeah, 13 Hours in Benghazi. Uh, me and Lynn went and saw it. Uh, we actually saw, I think, one of the VIP premieres. It was a pretty, pretty good movie. I think it does a... Uh, it did a good job at portraying the operators that were involved as um, the, the, the government agency operators involved as kind of who they would be in, in real life and how they would operate. So it, it did a good job in uh, tactically, visually, you know, demonstrating how uh, those guys operate. I, I think it did a poor job of illustrating um, the military's role or the military's um, kind of like the, the military's perception uh, of how they, they played into the, the whole entire event. And it kind of, took, for, for my opinion, you know, just being a special operations guys uh, guy, it made, it made the military kind of look bad. And I, I didn't like that. I, I think that, that part might've been politicized, but overall the, the movie was a decent movie and, 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 and I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I got to check it out. Um, I've been saying that I'm going to watch it, but I haven't, but it, it does look good. And I, I know the, some of the guys who were there, you know, they've been like all over the place talking about the situation and whatever. So obviously it's a big political issue, you know, fingers are pointed. It's this person's fault. It's that person's fault. We're going to kind of get into the facts of the situation and not so much, you know, speculate and, and try and lay blame on anyone's uh, feet. So, Mike, can you kind of give us a breakdown of the the situation? Yeah, I think I think what we're saying, I think what you're saying, is very important because you know the the entire situation. Honestly, just even talking about it, um, especially in a, in the political realm, and it becoming a political issue for years is is uh, is exhausting. Um, my perspective from it is is one from a special operations guy a special forces master sergeant where me and two from run tactics were standing up the commanders in extremist force for the continent of africa during september 11th and we were basically getting stood up and validated to be the response element to react to any kind of events like what took place in Benghazi. Um, 
what people don't know about the sys, you know, there there are some some operationally secure portions of the SIF that I won't talk about that I want to acknowledge um, that don't need to be talked about. But the the kind of overt unclassified realm of it is essentially the commanders and extremist force are aligned regionally with theaters of operation and they are the first responders, the first special forces or special operations responders to specifically hostage rescue, um, direct action, extremist type situations. And that's what they're designed for. Um, so when you look at that area or that region at the time, there was no SIF that was designated to deal with the continent of Africa, um, or specifically Northern Africa for Libya. And that's what me and two were doing at the time. We were standing up a company and 10 special forces group to be designated as the commanders and extremist force. And, and, and our place was the UCOM SIF, the European Command SIF, that was basically taking the continent of Africa and they were in a position or um, designated to be in a position to cover down on Africa while we were standing up. Um, I think our activation date was actually like 1 October when we were activated. And on September 11th, we had already been validated. Um, so we already stood up as a commanders and extremist force. So when September 11th happened, our unit, uh, you know, specifically our unit at Fort Carson, Colorado, was prepared to, you know, respond or react to the call. Obviously, a disproportionate, you know, geographical dilemma there when you're not Ford staged and we're in Fort Carson, Colorado, and you got to react to an event that's taking place in Northern Africa. So that's kind of like the 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 baseline of my perspective of of uh, when the events transpired in Benghazi. We've heard a lot of information. We've gotten a lot of information and things being said about facts about what went wrong and kind of whose fault is what. Is there, you know, removing any political implications? Is there any any base to any of these claims where people are like kind of pointing the finger at this politician, that politician, or is it more of a a tactical? Uh, type of thing yeah that, that's a good question because you know there there's a you know there's depending on who you talk to depending on what outlet you listen to there's a different perspective on exactly what took place um just so everybody knows you know me and me and specifically two from running tactics we were actually at fort bragg north carolina and um specifically doing supposed to do a, a teleconference and a meeting uh, relating to our rotation to to Libya because uh, we had been designated um, to go to Libya to to do a counterterrorism program, um, which is called a twelve weight program in that country. You know, for those out there who don't know it, know what it is, you can Google it. Twelve seven twelve weight aren't classified programs; they're congressionally mandated programs. The specifics of the operational uh, requirements and logistics and uh, details are obviously classified, so I won't go into that. But um, our mission was basically, before the events of September 11th, were to align the efforts to 
um, train up an, an element to counter um, what we had seen as a threat to the region, specifically to Libya, um, before this transpired. So that's our perspective. So when it actually happened, when September 11th happened, we were literally in a position to monitor and track everything that was going on. So, you know, you might get some perspective from other people who have opinions based on people they've talked to third hand. Well, you know, my, I was literally, you know, in the command and control hub of where things were being coordinated and commanded from the military's perspective as this was going down. Um, that's not the boast that I was, that I was in, directly involved in it because I wasn't, but that's to let the viewers know that, hey, this is not opinion. This is, this is fact from my perspective. Um, so perspective-wise and observing all the things that were taking place, on the military side, the right things were, were happening. You know, I, we had been given the mission. I had an 18 Fox, an intelligence, uh, you know, a, a, a Green Beret specifically tasked with developing and looking forward thinking and looking at intelligence and um, we call it OPE, um, preparing the environment through intelligence and giving us the situation. Before 9-11 of that year, we knew that there was significant, not only were there literal attacks against Westerners in the region of Benghazi and Tripoli and everywhere in between, but we knew from talking to high-level uh, intelligence experts that there were actual um, credible threats against American um, consulates and embassy and staff outside of you know uh, the U the U.S. but also the U.S. So th this wasn't this isn't speculation. This is literal intel analysis that was being done and facts that we were being given from reports that the State Department from other um, elements within the Department of Defense were giving to were gi were given to. Um, my 18 Fox who was developing this information and briefing us up on it. And, and, and to be honest was exciting us because we were like, Oh, we're, we're going into the shit. We're going into an, an environment, which is dangerous, which is what, you know, we wanted to be in involved in, you know, countering some kind of threat, which is what we were designed to do. So when the actual events took place on nine 11, it, it was just, you know, leading up to it, all the signs and, and symptoms were there. Politically, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't like to have uh, political perspective because uh, I have my actual perspective, but I don't base that perspective based on policy or based on political affiliations. I base it on my exact um, facts that I was going through at the time. One of the facts that I know is the Department of Defense was intimately informed and involved about that entire situation, meaning there was an SF guy on the ground. There were SF dudes on the ground. There were operators, SF Green Berets involved specifically with that situation that had informed their chain of commands. One of the problems that I've identified after going to Libya, after this took place, was we have we we have too many layers of command and control 
that bog down uh, the systems that that can give the tactical ground fighter the options or the execution authority to protect themselves. Meaning, like if you're looking at as at a business, if the guy on the first floor needs to make a decision and he has to go to the guy in human resources on the second floor who then who has to go to the HR manager on the third floor who then has to go to operations and to the CEO before they can get an answer. By the time it gets to the seventh floor back down to the first floor, it's too late and things have already transpired. What's the same? Go ahead. No, I was going to say, so that's, that's kind of something that I've heard like, I've heard those sentiments over the years regarding situations that have happened militarily where, you know, uh, because of that, those bureaucratic layers, it, it makes things harder to do in real time. It, yeah, and that's exactly, that's exactly the problem. So, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't. From the movie 13 Hours in, in Benghazi, you look at the guys, they call them global response staff, they're called GRS guys, and you see how they reacted. And, you know, and, and maybe it was a, as a Hollywood kind of moment where the guy goes to the, I think it was the one of the, the, the chiefs in charge of intelligence for uh, that agency and says, hey, we need to react now. And he says, your job isn't to react now. We don't pay you for this. You will stand by and you won't do anything. Well, the, the problem is when things tactically require immediate action responses to save lives, the execution authority should belong to the men on the ground, not to anybody else outside of that uh, problem set. So the equation would be, you know, if I'm a sniper and I'm put in a position to overwatch bad guys, and a bad guy does something that's an immediate threat, I shouldn't have to reach out for request um, or asking permission to kill a bad guy who's going to be an immediate threat. I should be able to, through my rules of engagement, be able to engage or, or deal with that situation in real time. So the problem is, one of the problem is, we didn't have really a lot of set protocols in place to allow for the tactical or immediate action authorities to be in place for people to react without reaching out uh, to react um, without permission. Or, in, in my opinion, we had people in positions of power who either through um, their inability to react decisively or their fear um, of, of the ramifications weren't able to make decisive decisions to change um, kind of like the, the, t the tides uh, or, or the, the battle as it was happening on the ground. So what do you do? The guys on the ground tactically did what they had to do. And, and in my opinion, uh, and, and a lot of guys' opinion who know about that situation, if it wasn't for the military, the, specifically the special for, uh, special operations guys that were on the ground. And if it wasn't for the GRS dudes who were in Benghazi and, and who were in Tripoli, who specifically took it upon themselves to take action, then you would have been looking at a very different, more complex situation. Like literally 
dozens of Americans taken captive by Al-Qaeda in northern Africa and then probably dispersed across the region. Um, and, and then you'd be seeing, you know, periodically dudes' heads getting uh, lobbed off as they would be used as propaganda and, you know, other tools to drive uh, AQ's um, or now ISIS's um, campaign. So a, a very complex situation that at the tactical level needs to be dealt with accordingly how they operate. Now, above that, you look at the strategies and the, the complex layers that exist above that. You, <laughs> you literally, and I've experienced this, and, and, and not, now that I'm out of the military, I will, I will gladly um, express this opinion. <laughs> um, I'll give you an example. Me and my guys wanted to do an operation. We wanted to do a mission. And this mission involved us going to do a route reconnaissance, right? A simple mission that required simple planning that my guys could do in minutes. A, a mission which, which didn't involve a lot of risk. You know, the military um, does risk analysis in everything that we do. We, we have a system in which we scale the risk versus reward. And that determines kind of like the approval processes. Well, above me, and I won't name them as an organization because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want them to, to give me a phone call in the middle of the night, yeah. but uh, an organ, uh, an organization above me was in charge of us. And we submitted what's called a concept of the operation or a con op to be approved. Well, they have to, they have to approve it. And then beyond that, another entity above them has to approve it in special op- this, these are spe- these are special operations ch- chain of commands that that are that have chains of commands who, who have officers and ncos who go through all this review all this uh, uh concepts and they look at it and analyze it from their perspective so you know you have a guy on the ground me and my team who who knows the ground because we live in it we're immersed in it and then we submit the con up to a level above us. They come back and say, hey, you guys can't do this. It's too risky. And we say, well, how can we reduce the risk? And they say, well, you can't do this. You can't do that. Okay, we'll change it. And, and now you look at it. Well, you can't do this. You have to do it this way. Well, okay, we'll do it that way. Okay, now let's send it to the next layer. Now there's another layer between – there's two layers until it gets to AFRICOM, who's the overall theater commanding approval to be able to enact what essentially is a two-hour operation of me, my guys driving down a road and getting atmospherics, which involves literally no risk. And every step along the way, I have staff officers in each shop, you know, J1 through J6, Google it if you don't know what it means, but it's basically officers and positions who are sitting in cubicles, who are, arm, who are armchair quarterbacking Every single uh, request that I want to do from my perspective from the ground. And then you have these layers. And by time it gets requested and gets denied or approved, you're talking weeks. You're talking months. I mean, this, this, this con op I'm specifically talking about took three weeks until they came back and said, it's denied. And I go back and I say, why is it denied? This is a critical portion of us developing 
intelligence and understanding of the environment so we could develop a con op for an operation and you're denying it. And they're just like, it's just denied. It's been denied because of the risk to force. And that was the answer. That's the bottom line. So that is literally by definition, my perspective of what a bureaucracy is where you have so many layers of chains of commands of human beings with different opinions that are put in positions to dictate to the guy on the ground what specifically they're allowed and not allowed to do. And I will tell you, that is the difference between tiered forces ability to operate. Because me being working for USAFIC, which is US Army Special Forces Command, and being putting that position to be on the ground and to be questioned by higher ups, um, being a senior NCO who's been in special operations for over a decade, who has more operational experience than any staff officer above me, that's uh, obviously a higher rank, but they won't listen to what I'm saying, is one of the issues that the tactical warfighter on the ground and special forces deals with on a daily basis in Afghanistan and Iraq and every country across the global pursuit of countering terrorism. Um, that's the long version of it. But then there's other organizations out there who are like the, you know, if Starbucks, which isn't a franchise, it was the franchise, would be the efficient model of success, who puts operators or individuals on the ground that they trust to make decisions and and decentralize those decision-making processes and and trust them to operate and to make decisions at the tactical level that strategically matter, but they've given them the authority to make those decisions happen. I won't mention units, but people who understand the realm of uh, special operations don't have to uh, think too too much about what I'm specifically talking about. So that's the difference in, in tiers and 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 bureaucracy that we deal with. Um, and that's the biggest challenge that you face when you're dealing with trying to make things happen on the ground versus the layers of bureaucracy leading up all the way to the policymakers um, at the highest levels in Washington, D.C. That's a very interesting perspective. And it's something that I know the operators on the ground have had issues with over the course of the war. Uh, and, and there's been books written and they, with, they speak about these kind of things. Is there anything else that comes to mind when you think about that bureaucracy? I mean, so <laughs> it's funny because if you talk to any specifically special forces guy, uh, any Green Beret, he, he, he probably has 100 stories about the same thing happening. And, you know, I don't like identifying problems without identifying potential solutions. So I'll, I'll give you some, a couple of good examples, specifically from that rotation. But I'll just lay out some ways that I think it could be fixed. Look, there's a there's a there's a big disconnect between. Um, right. Staff authorities and staff officials and then the tactical elements that are on the ground within use of SOC and use of FIC. The problem is. By design, and, and you know, I, I'll, I'll talk about JSOC, and and I don't like to talk about JSOC, but 
just specifically, I'll talk about them in the context that JSOC is like a Fortune 500 company, right? They're efficient. They know how to operate uh, effectively and efficiently. And so they have their staff by design, um, even their tactical elements by design are set up to support the warfighter, meaning the staff isn't set up by default to improve an officer's career as a stepping stone, but instead it's set up by design for people to be put in critical positions to support the warfighter. Their ultimate objective is to support the entity on the ground. So when you look at use of FIC, right, specifically AFRICOM, you have these layers, uh, Special Operations Command Africa, you have, uh, I think it's Transit Hell, uh, uh, um, you know, I can't remember the, off the top of my head the name of it, but there's another layer of, of staff. But when you look at these layers of staff, right, they were originally manned, because AFRICOM was a new element, manned by reserve special operations officers that were lieutenant colonels that were put into JAF or uh, staff positions to be in charge of, say, J3, say, operations. So now you have an experienced SIF element on the ground telling, looking for approvals at the J3 level from operations, but now you have a lieutenant colonel who just came out of, you know, he maybe he's a Wells Fargo employee, and he just got activated for a year. Now he's in charge of all J3 operations on the continent of Africa. Now you can see the dilemma. The dilemma is there's a disconnect between um, you know, what, what is his roles and duties and responsibilities and his objectives in supporting the warfighter. Well, it's, in my experience, it's, it's not to support the warfighter. It's to objectify and, and be the mediator – and the person who is always uh, wargaming the guy on the ground. And maybe that's an efficiency model. Maybe that's like a, a checks and balances model. But it shouldn't be. The guy on the ground is the experienced, the eyes and ears. And two specific examples from, from Special Operations Command Africa specifically. One, my guys were on the ground and I was receiving phone calls from guys who were controlling the platforms that were observing the, uh, the ground. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not a classified, um, element of how we operate. We fly around in airplanes and we see things on the ground. I literally had a young Sergeant call me, uh, into the skiff, which is, you know, just a, a classified area. We picked up on the red line and started briefing me up on the situation on the ground. And was telling me that they were observing a mass of elements moving and maneuvering at an area. And they saw that there was a pile of cars like they were planning or pre-staging for an operation. Now, she, this person happened to be a female. Um, it could have been a male. It doesn't matter. Uh, but they were telling me that they were observing this and analyzing the imagery and based on their analysis, they think they're staging for an attack. And I, I advised this person that I am on the ground and I have freedom of, of movement and I'm literally driving everywhere around and there's nobody staging anything. And they began to argue with me that they were observing this and they have analyzed their imagery and specifically they saw people massing. 
And I said, give me the grid. They gave me the grid. I called my, one of my guys. I said, hey, go to this grid. They jumped in their car. They drove to the grid. And it was a gas station. And there was a line of cars backed up because the gas had stopped being uh, pumped. And now everybody was waiting for gas. It was, an, it was a mass of people waiting to get gas. So when you look at it from a operational standpoint, you have a staff that is dislocated or disjointed from an operational environment. And then you have the guys who are on the ground who are literally the warfighters who were immersed in the environment. And then you have <laughs> them trying to justify their job, their existence on the, on the planet in special operations versus us telling them what the facts of the matter are on the ground and there's the disconnect, right? You could see what the disconnect. Second example, um, we have a commander, right, uh, above us of Jesotif, of, of the Joint Special Operations Task Force that's ahead above, above, above us, that's in between us and Special Operations Command Africa. They're an entire chain of command that specifically we have to answer to who they answer to SOCAF, who SOCAF answers to AFRICOM, who AFRICOM answers to the uh, SECDEF and the Joint Chief. So you already see the problem. I go and I say to the commander of this, of, of just sort of TF, um, hey, based on um, the, the, what we're seeing on the ground, we, we recommend doing this, this following course of action. And I won't go into the courses of action that we developed, but we specifically wanted to do an operation. And the answer was, Master Sergeant Glover, based on what you're telling me, um, you're not giving me a warm and fuzzy about what you're doing to mitigate risk. I've been on the ground, and that place is like Somalia, and it's dangerous. It's, it is a dangerous area, and I don't, know, I don't understand how you could sit here and brief me up on this knowing how dangerous it is. My response was, sir, with all due respect, I live in a safe house in the city I am immersed in the environment. I eat out into the, uh, in, in the community. I, I know the patterns of life. I know the pockets of, of uh, discontent against uh, the Americans. I know the intelligence. I have a guy analyzing intelligence. And I know the operational in-state and objective of what I want to accomplish. And I've done everything to mitigate the risk. And the answer was um, – I was just there, and I know how dangerous it is. Now, I was there when that person was there, and they literally were driven in a convoy through checkpoints to their positions uh, to meet up with us when we're driving around in soft skins um, immersed in the environment. So, again, the problem is the disconnect of perspective versus reality. The perspective at, you can call it 10, 20, 30,000 feet, Versus my perspective on the ground of getting specific analytics that I'm immersed in is the disconnect. How do you fix it? Well, number one, there's already elements that, it, that I've already mentioned who have fixed it. By trusting, by, in, by entrusting um, that the guys on the ground know what they're doing, giving them their left and right limits and their end states and their objectives and allowing them to accomplish that task. That's why, that's why, um, without going into too much detail, because it's a whole subset of a conversation, 
That's why in 2006, 2007, 2008, when me and two and, and, and I'll call them a joint task force were going out smashing terrorists uh, as a franchise, were completely 100% mission successful in our niche of the overall strategy because the, the franchise that Stanley McChrystal um, controlled worked as a joint task force. Because we were giving the authority, we were giving the permissions, and we were, we were entrusted by our chains of commands to operate. And when special forces teams now can't even react to an immediate action drill on the ground, meaning a bad guy shoots at me and I can't shoot back at them because I have to request authority to a chain of command who has to request a another authority through another chain of command becomes a major issue for the war fighters on the ground, which comes out in political perspectives or political commentary from joint chiefs or from generals who are basically in a nutshell, essentially giving their opinion as balanced and tactfully as they can that things need to change on the battlefield. So policy needs to affect change on the battlefield. Um, a little bit more longer winded, but people need to understand that that's where the discontent, that's where the imbalance exists. And we just need to get better at it by trusting or entrusting in the specific operators on the ground, the green berets that are on the ground that they know what the hell they're doing and they can accomplish the task. Just let them accomplish what they need to accomplish. Give them their left and right limits, give them their end states and they're going to do the, – the best mission sets I've seen are when they've literally done, allowed that to happen and given them the authorities, and they'll make it happen. Twelve men in the middle of nowhere can change the world, can change the strategy, can change the entire atmospherics of an environment in, in, in one rotation, one combat rotation. Yeah, that's all very interesting stuff to hear, especially coming from your experience. Now – with all that being said, we are very apolitical and we we sh- kind of stray straight from controversy on the show. But I'm going to ask you a question that instantly is going to involve some type of politics. But I think it's important to ask and to hear from someone with your perspective on the whole Benghazi thing. So, obviously, Hillary Clinton is being blamed or being, uh, like I, I want to say, kind of crucified by the conservative media over the Benghazi situation. Now, I'm not saying she's perfect or anything like that. I'm just talking the facts. And and th- and th- that's why I want to ask you this question. Do you think it's appropriate for the blame to fall at her feet, given all that you know and everything you just spoke about regarding bureaucracy and so forth? Um, yeah, so that's probably the first time I've been asked that question. Um, so here's, here's my perspective on it. Like I look government to me, government is like a, a, to me, government is like Kmart, right? Kmart's a broken business. There's a reason it's a broken business because they continue to repeat the same mistakes and they don't adapt. Um, the government is like blockbuster video, right? 
you sell you sell VHS S tapes and it's popular, and then you sell DVD and then it's popular, but then you fail to adapt because um, Netflix is coming out and you got red boxes that are coming out, but you continue to to hope and strive that people are going to come in and buy the DVDs off the shelf. So when you look at the government, the government is is a business that is full of temporary help. There are people who come into positions who have it, the military is the same way, where people come into positions and they we call them the good idea fairies, right? They come in with their good ideas, they try to change the world because they want to make their impact on it and change history. They instate a program of institution and then they leave. And the program falls apart, is disjointed, and then chaos and catastrophe follows because nobody's properly managing the programs. They don't sustain themselves. And then the next person who comes in eliminates the program and then starts a new program. So when you look at governance in the military specifically, it's all temporary hire and temporary work. So then you have Hillary Clinton. She gets put in a position of power and she's in charge. The great thing about business, private business or private industry versus the government is there's more sustained um, sustainment of personnel and operations and continuity in private industry. That's the reason it succeeds, right? You have a business model that starts, and if they're smart and they're a Fortune 500 company, they adapt, they mold, they, they're flexible, they're, they're adaptable, they, they uh, continue to grow and build off a of baseline. Well, if you look at the military and the government, it's the complete opposite. They build and then they break it down. And then somebody comes in, rebuilds it, and they break it down. Well, that's what happens when I think about Hillary Clinton and the political situation the politicized situation with Benghazi. Look, anybody in that position would be blamed, right? If you're in charge, you're the commander in chief, you're the commander of a, a unit, if you're the CEO of a company and something goes wrong under your watch, you're ultimately to blame. Specifically, do I think she did something specific that was um, uh, malice is how I would look at it. Um, to, to, to direct blame, I would have to think that she would be, she would be malice in her decision-making or her indecisive decision-making to be, to, to call her someone to point a finger at and to blame. So I don't think she was malice. I mean, she's a merit. She's an, number one, she's an American. Number two, she worked for the government. Number three, she's, she's selfless in the fact that she's put herself in the, in the position to serve. Uh, regardless of her affiliations or agendas or incentives or motivation. So ultimately, is she responsible? Absolutely, because that's what anybody in that situation would be held accountable to. Could she have effectively changed anything on the ground? Maybe. At the speed in which I understand things were happening, the guys on the ground did exactly what they were supposed to do, and outside of that realm, could they have done more? Maybe. Could have could an F-16 have been called to do a strafe to maybe um, 
lull the the mortar rounds that winded up ki- killing Glenn and Tyrone? Maybe. Could, um, and I won't even go into more details. It's the what ifs, right? There could have been a hundred what ifs along the way. Again, the focal point of my my entire um, really philosophy on it is that the problem doesn't lie at any one specific person. The problem lies in the system. If if I'm the president of the United States and I have an organization that I know can crush any counter, crush and counter any terrorist uh, element on the planet, and I trust them as a franchise to be able to get that done, I would al- allow them as a good leader to do their thing as a mobile unilateral uh, mission set to destroy and kill and counter and do whatever they have to do to make sure um, they, they make America safer. And our president, in a way, has done that. So um, people say President Obama is bad for the military. Actually, he's very good for clandestine operations, good for covert operations, good for uh, drone strikes, good for specific things um, in a specific field. Maybe it's the disconnect between him taking uh, um, um, being disconnected from the overt fight. Um, but from a covert perspective, I think he's done more than I think any other president has has done. And that's open source. That's not me being an insider. That's me reading open source facts about what he's doing. Politically, I don't give a, a damn either way. But I know that, you know, obviously it's a political uh, it's a political issue because when you have somebody who potentially was in charge who specifically was put in a power of uh, a position of power and maybe failed at doing their job from somebody's perspective that I could see the, the, uh, um, the relationship of why they would, they would think that they were, they would be a poor, um, person to lead something else. Um, do I think she could have did, did anything different that night? No, I don't think so. I think, that irrele- it, it's irrelevant to even speculate that she could have done anything different because it didn't matter. Because the ground fighters, the GRS guys, and specifically the special operations guys on the ground, did what they had to do. Outside of that, by time anything else reached them, it probably would have been too late. Now, what has that done since then? Well, that's made us change the way we look at how we react and respond. Whether that's setting up different protocols, whether that's pre-staging personnel, there was a lot of lessons learned that were taken away. As long as we as a military and as a government um, learned from that that lesson, that hard lesson learned from losing four great Americans, um, that's the only thing we could do. Um, A lot of things may have, could have been done differently. But I could tell you one thing, and this is from an insider perspective the fact that those guys in Benghazi and the guys in Tripoli reacted and responded the way they did those are the heroes those are the guys who made the difference all the difference in the world without them doing what they did dude we we would be having a conversation about 
the next person's head getting lobbed off on an ISIS propaganda video because right. you would be you would be looking at 20 plus people who'd be taken hostage by AQAP and IM and ISIS and every other terrorist element in that region. So um, the pol- the politics outside of that that I, I, I don't think it matters because I don't think it could have made a difference. Right. That's that's uh, interesting. And, and and again, I, I agree in, with some of your sentiment. Like, we shouldn't be focused on, you know, pointing fingers. Let's honor those guys who really made the difference and, and who paid the ultimate sacrifice. And then, like you said, the good thing about it, about a, this bad situation, was that protocols were changed and things like that to where if something, an attack happens again, the response, the outcome would be different because the response would be different and more efficient and that sort of thing. So that's always good to learn. I think the mistake in that situation would be to not learn from it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. That That's, it, it's, look, you, we could talk about it for a hundred years about lessons learned, but if, if there's not tangible, you know, executable things that have been done to ensure it doesn't happen again, then it's all for nothing. And we're not learning, we're not, we're not learning from the, the temporary bureaucracy that exists within the government. And, and, uh, warfighter wise, I know specifically from a special forces perspective, uh, it changed a lot of things. When, when my guys to the ground, the first thing my guys did, my smart operators on the ground were linking up with embassy personnel. We developed crisis response contingencies. We, we changed the way, um, the security was done by the state department, by soft, by, um, really a lot of entities on the ground. I mean, I was doing daily briefs with the Canadians, with, uh, different countries that were on the ground and what we needed to do as, you know, joint allies to make sure that, because they were worried as well that they didn't want that to happen to their country, um, how we could inc- increase the prot- protocols and strategy to ensure that this never happened again. And we spent, you know, I spent the last year really in that country, um, half of it as a military guy and half of it as a, as a private civilian um, trying to uh, make that a more efficient process. Okay, so transitioning off of that topic, you know, that's, a, I mean, I could talk about Libya and, and the bureaucracy for days, but transitioning in, into that, uh, off that topic, uh, talking about something that's been, been pretty controversial and uh, different outlets, I'll call them outlets, have, I, I think, politicized what's becoming really the, the standard in the military with females being involved in combat operations and combat arms. Um, in the military and special operations, female engagement teams have played a role in special operations for a long period of time. I mean, as, as long as I can remember um, being involved um, in special operations, I've known women to be involved in, in indirect roles. And then with the female engagement program being literally on the front lines with special operations elements. So the, the, the dilemma or the politicized uh, issue and topic is whether or not women in special operations are going to lower the standards of a male-dominated um, job, specific career field. 
So as, as some people know or may not know, recently uh, two females have graduated from two, – two officers have graduated from ranger school. And people understand ranger school is a small – I went to ranger school when I was 19 years old, right? And I learned small unit tactics, and it, it's a leadership school. I learned how to be a better combat leader as a young soldier in that school. Any any female in, in, in that's on the front line in a leadership position should be given the opportunity to go to the schools. It's a school. The standards of those schools haven't dropped despite the, the, the politics involved in it. They haven't lowered any standards. I have friends who are literally in our eyes or ranger instructors in ranger training brigade and fourth, fifth and sixth ranger training brigade. And they don't, they have told me that the standards aren't dropping. They're not lowering. So, so just, just for the record, I want like people to know. So the, the standards are not dropping regardless of what you may have heard. Yeah. So you, you know, you're talking, so there's two, there's two separate issues that they're, they're, that people are debating. One is the schools, right? There's ranger school, there's uh, a sapper school. There's all these schools that exist that have standards that now females for the first time are able to go to range school. These are schools versus organizations or units where women can serve on the front line in an operational capacity to be a specific, uh, be in a specific role in the combat arms. So the schools haven't lowered their priorities or their, uh, their standards. Um, so now the second issue is whether females should be integrated and how are they going to be integrated into special operations? And I remember the debate was at the SOCOM level. And uh, specifically, I remember reading about like the Marine Corps um, came forth and said, hey, look, we're not going to lower lower standards. It's not going to happen. Females have their specific roles. We're, we're not going to buy into it. And I think ultimately the decision was we we are going to allow women to play roles in combat MOSs or job specialties, and it's going to happen. And we're going to we're going to develop the strategy, which is going to be uh, I think it's a three to five year strategy of implementing them into combat roles and positions. Like I have two takes on this. One, my first take is from from my experience. Women, women on the battlefield, on the front lines, play an integral, specific, specialized, and relevant role on the battlefield. They, they reduce signatures and reconnaissance environments. They, they facilitate um, access and placement to specific locations and environments and uh, relationships that couldn't be built without them. They specifically can search and seize, and there is a list, a plethora of of things they bring as assets to the battlefield um, when it comes to combat operations, direct line, front line operations. And they have they have literally been on the front lines with special operations elements and given their lives as American patriots and soldiers. So any any coward out there who's talking um, bad about these women in these roles, they exist in these roles already, and they have given their lives for our country in these roles. So anybody who comes out of the woodwork talking poorly about these women serving in these roles, um, number one, I have no respect for, obviously, but number two, 
probably don't have the balls themselves to serve in these positions because the only thing they have is an opinion versus the execution of them serving their country. And, and, or they don't have the, uh, the knowledge or experience of working with these women in, in the capacities that they work in, which, which I do from personal experience and have seen them uh, work and operate in the assets that, it, that they are. The second part to that is do I agree wholeheartedly that the integration of females into male organizations is a good thing? I don't. I don't agree with it because I, one, I don't agree with it because uh, anatomically and psychologically, there are different things and perspectives and psychological mindsets that happen to men um, when women are integrated into organizations. And I've seen it from personal experience. When you get attached to a woman, I've literally been in gunfights where women were on the battlefield with us, where men were more concerned about protecting the woman as opposed to dealing with the, the effects of the enemy um, because of their instinctual um, you know, nature to protect women. Anatomically, obviously, women are built different. They have period... Uh, periods, uh, cycles, um, uh, hygiene-wise, there are a whole bunch of considerations that people don't talk about, but are considerations on the battlefield. Um, integrate, obviously, being of opposite sex, um, integrating them on the battlefield in, in, in units could be counterproductive to the ability of specific organizations and units being um, effective on the battlefield which what's the solution i i think the solution is start if there's all male units right which some people would look at as uh the standard women some women would look at as sexist why not make all women combat organizations i mean why not make an organization uh, a platoon a company a regiment of all women combat warfighters that's play specific roles and reconnaissance and uh, op as operators, as individuals that if they could hack it, if they could make the standard or meet the standard, then they could be relevant warfighters. Um, it's, it's a debate, but any part of this debate that gets personal and that doesn't come from an, an actual perspective of what they have sacrificed already, to me, is a skewed perspective and, and, and just a, an opinion or voice, or forum that I won't even listen to. Um, I, I think there's there's a couple podcasts, there's a couple media outlets that, that are putting out information that's completely false. That's coming from a perspective of I'm a man, and you know men should never lower their standards, and men should never do this. But they're not coming up with any solutions. They're not talking about the sacrifice they already given, and they don't even have an experience or relevancy in, in, in the topic or subject matter. Period. So more to follow. We're going to have a female engagement um, uh, warfighter that's been on the battlefield, that's been in gunfights, that might have a different perspective and um, uh, maybe some solutions that maybe some policymakers or military leaders will look at and uh, pay attention to. Yeah, that's all very interesting stuff. And uh, those are going to be interesting episodes to kind of hear the perspective that you're not really hearing, which you've broken down a little bit. Um, 
So, you know, I, I can't wait for that. And we'll get those in the coming episodes. So another thing I wanted to ask you about, Mike, recently the SOCOM commander, uh, General Votel, was talking about how there are operators going after high-level ISIS components and things like that. And and uh, so I just wanted to ask you if you think that's like an effective method or, you know, speaking about it, you know, how do you think about that whole situation? Yeah, so right, that's that's forefront in the news when you're looking at counterterrorism and, and the strategy, the new strategy, um, which is a not a new strategy, it's just a, a, uh, a, a more of a new campaign against um, ISIS specifically. Um, I read Votel's statements and one of the things he said he wanted was the media to stop talking about it. Because um, the media was putting out too much information on specifics of how operations were going down and specifically talking about tactics, techniques, and procedures that, uh, of how these guys operated. There's no secret to the fact that there are entities and elements out there that are the dogs of war. And if you let them off their leash and you give them their left and right limits and you give them a set objective – they're going to crush it. And, and like I said, these, these, these organizations are to me equated uh, to fortune 500 companies who just go out there and just are monster companies and organizations and so effective and efficient that they're going to get the job done. So my, my take on it is, you know, policy drives intelligence requirement, which drives operations, which drives tactical warfighters on the ground to do their job. Policymakers give these guys permissions to do their job. Strategically, in their niche, they're going to crush it. Strategically, big picture, are there more, more robust things that need to take place? Absolutely. Killing and capturing bad guys is one sliver of the entire strategy of executing a campaign against countering terrorism worldwide. What Votel's boys are doing, uh, what our military um, is doing, is exactly what needs to be happening right now. You will probably get snippets in the media of maybe uh, some of, the, some of the, the highlights of what's going on. The greatest thing about uh, the Army is that uh, they don't boast and brag about their accomplishments. So you won't hear um, Army operators on, on uh, CNN uh, laying out the uh, uh, specific battles that they've, they've been involved in. But expect to hear more off the battlefield of ISIS beeholes getting their faces smashed in by American warfighters. As long as... We have the policymakers who understand that that's an effective strategy and they give these guys through Votel the permission and authorities to do this. Look, they've already stacked the deck, man. They have the target packets. It's, it's a no-brainer. They have all the information. The only thing they need to do is give these guys the execution authority and uh, a lot of heads are going to be be crushed in and that's that's what we need that's that that's what we need from the special operations perspective leading into a, a larger campaign to counter terrorism um 
long term. So that's my that's my take. Yeah, that's a great take, Mike. And um, you know, as always, we appreciate your perspective. So I want to announce that we are going to start doing some webinars, and you can opt in, and we encourage you to opt into the webinar by sending an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. And in the subject line, just write webinar so we know that we can lock you in for these webinars. And basically, it's the webinars are going to consist of us giving you some information. We'll, we'll probably answer some questions, and then we'll give you information on what we got in the works. Uh, it's possible that we may do some some kind of discount deals. Like if you're if you're showing up for our webinars, you may get a discount on a product or on a course that may be offered. And and we'll kind of figure that out as we go along. And, and we're going to post more about this on social media, so be on the lookout for that. And just once again, if you're interested in these webinars, they're free webinars, send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net and put webinar in the subject line and we'll lock you in. And on the next episode, we're going to give you more details on that. So we'll have a specific date and time where you guys could tune in and, and uh, hear what we're up to. So... With that, we're going to close out the episode. As always, we encourage you to comment, to subscribe, to download the episodes from iTunes and leave leave feedback. You can send emails to us. You can hit us up on social media if you have any suggestions or anything like that. Mike's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com. His Facebook account is Fieldcraft LLC. His Instagram is Soft Survivor. That's SOF Survivor. And his Twitter account is IG Soft Survivor. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. My Twitter and Instagram is IG Recon. It's the same handle. And as always, we enjoy doing the show with you guys. Uh, we appreciate all the support we've gotten thus far. And we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another great episode. Peace. <laughs>